Well, good morning, everyone. Please take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John today, John chapter 8, as we continue our survey through this incredible Gospel account that we have from John, perhaps one of the very best friend of Jesus. He's starting in verse 1 of John 8. John 8, verse 1, here is what we read from John's account. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. May the Lord add his blessing at the hearing and the reading of his word this morning. Years ago, I was a first-year teacher in the public school system of East Peoria Community High School back in the day. Fresh out of college, it's my first year teaching, first real adult career. And... Uh, it's uh, coming into the fall season where fall sports are uh, kind of concluding and now the, the new season is opening for the winter sports where you've got basketball and wrestling was the big deal back in the day, back in central Illinois. <laughs> There's a wrestler over there. And uh, sure enough... I'm in the middle of teaching a class one day. I think it was advanced algebra. I'm teaching some class. And sure enough, I uh, get a knock at the door and look outside uh, my classroom door, and I notice it's the, the wrestling coach. And the wrestling coach uh, comes up to me and asks to talk to me a little bit. So he step out in the hall and right in the middle of my class, which I'm not real happy about, but okay, he wants to talk, what do you, what do you want? And he goes, you know, uh, you know so-and-so, one, uh, one of your students, yeah, yeah, I know, well, um, he's not passing the class, and that's made him ineligible to begin the season. He can't wrestle. I said, okay. He says, well, you know, isn't there something you can do about that? And I'm like, well... Um, I'm not sure what you're asking me here. He said, well, is there any way, you know, you could find a way to pass him? Because, you know, wrestling is his life. 
And if he doesn't wrestle, I don't know what's going to happen to him. And I said, well, I really appreciate, you know, your question, but I can't just, I don't have the authority to just say he passes. I, I don't, you know, other kids have done the work and they've done well and are passing and he hasn't done the work. He hasn't done well. He's not passing. I can't just wave a magic wand and go, oh, he passes. Well, can't you help me with this? I said, well, I'd love to, but he, his grade needs to go up. And when it goes up, then, you know, then he can wrestle again, right? And he kind of walked off in a huff. Next hour, I'm teaching again, knock on the door. Oh, it's the, it's the men's athletic director at the door now. Oh, okay. Going up another level. So, so he wants to talk to me. And what was really a little difficult with this situation is, again, I was new to the school, but I knew this man because this man was a friend of my uncle's. And uh, so we had already kind of hit it off. And so, you know, he's a friend of my uncle's, so he's my friend, this kind of thing. And he's quite a bit older than me. And uh, he pulls me outside. He goes, yeah, I heard about the situation with this wrestler. Is there anything you can do? I said, well, I, I, I can't. You know, I, I have to be fair, and I'm just following the principles by the authority of the school to follow the rules. <laughs> I, I can't just pass the kid. Yeah, but it would mean a, a great deal if you could just do something like that. I, I, I can't just do this. And then, so then he went to this. He went, as a personal favor to me, would you pass the His name was Rick. I said, Rick, I can't do it. Now, if you want to get permission from the superintendent's office or something, fine. But I can't just arbitrarily pass a kid. What would you do in that situation? Little moral dilemma. Of course, he walked away too. As we'll see today in our study, there will always be new ministry challenges there will always be new moral dilemmas. But as Christ followers, we need to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We really have no right to be in contempt of anyone. But in Christ, we, need, we can experience God's amazing grace. And from that, we then need to go and sin no more. Our message series is that you may believe. Today's focus is on God's amazing grace, as we just sung a moment ago. You'll notice in your Bible that there are some textual concerns with John's gospel from chapter 753 to 8.11. Did you notice that? There might be some parentheses and some notes at the bottom of your text. The earliest Greek manuscripts do not contain this text. Now, there are only about a handful of what's known as spurious texts throughout the entire New Testament. Most notable and the largest is the end of the Gospel of Mark, which seems to be clearly a fabrication by an overzealous scribe. And then there is this one here in John's Gospel in chapter 8, which means that perhaps this account was added to John later, or perhaps this account is from a different book. Some suppose it belongs in Luke's Gospel. Some ancient manuscripts actually place the account in Luke. However, even though it is relatively certain that this text has been inserted here in John, <clears throat> there was generally early church acceptance of this event in Jesus' life as being authentic. The event is consistent with other Old Testament and New Testament teaching as well. 
And the matter of canonicity, that is the measure by which we allow any text into the Scripture, the matter of canonicity for this passage seems to have been settled no later than the 3rd or 4th century when the canon of Scripture was being determined anyway. Therefore, the only caution we should have is with any new doctrine or independent teaching that the text may present. So we need to exercise some care as we approach this particular text of Scripture. But lastly, I do want to point this out. I think it's important to note how honest our scriptural documents are. Whenever there's a question about authenticity, there's no cover-up to try to shore up the Bible from the scholars who presented it to us. No, we, we are plainly told that the earliest manuscripts in the Greek just do not have this text. In terms of its placement, I think this passage works rather well here in John 8. In chapter 6 and 7, Jesus is encountering great opposition, and by illustration of this opposition, the woman caught in adultery is presented. And again, they're now testing him again. They're further opposing him. But today, in our discussion, you'll see six spiritual principles that in the end clearly demonstrate God's amazing grace. But before we study, let's ask God's help. Would you please pray with me? Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to this text, we long to hear from you with what you might say to us through it by way of application, where we would hold to the idea that there is one interpretation, but there's all kinds of ways we can apply this truth. And so, Lord, we ask more than all else, especially with this particular text, that you would be our guide, that you would be our teacher. And we long to lean into you, Lord, to hear what you might have to say in it and through it for us today. Lord, thank you for this opportunity, this high privilege we have to spend just a few moments in your word as we gather together in your name. Have your way in our hearts, we ask. We pray this in your son's wonderful and awesome name. Amen. Towards the end of the service, we will be having communion. So if you're watching online today, we encourage you to find some bread and some juice so you can partake with us. Also, after the service today, Elders and their wives and deacons and their wives are going to be up front. If you are in need of prayer today, you're so welcome to come and receive prayer for anything that's going on in your world after the service today. So, if you have your sermon notes outlined, here is the first truth for your consideration. There will always be new ministry challenges. Notice what it says in verse 1, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives the Mount of Olives, this was sort of a base camp for Jesus when he was near Jerusalem, just to the east of the city. In Luke twenty two thirty nine, we're told, and he, that is Jesus, came out and went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. So Jesus knew this area very well. Verse 2, it says, early in the morning he came again to the temple, all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Notice how it says, early in the morning. By the way, that's a great time to start ministry. Clearly, Jesus was a very industrious rabbi, as he begins at the crack of dawn, if you will. He came again, it says, to the temple. We need to understand this was a very dangerous thing for Jesus to do. Why? The religious authorities in Jerusalem were looking for any opportunity to seize him and even put him to death, if possible. From the Mount of Olives, you'd be traveling from the east down to the Kidron Valley and then up to the eastern gate to enter the city with close proximity to the Temple Mount. And notice all the people came to him. A crowd is gathering, as is usually the case with Jesus' ministry. He just always seemed to be drawing a bunch of people to himself. But then it said he sat down and he taught them. 
For a rabbi, this is a position of authority. To sit and teach and for people to gather around to hear. And now the stage is set for what would happen next. It's right at this point, right in the middle of his teaching, that Jesus is interrupted. Kind of like when I was trying to teach some math long ago. Jesus is interrupted, inconvenienced, and challenged with a new ministry opportunity. Is this how you see things? For the most part, most of us consider challenges as annoying, as an inconvenience, as a great interruption to our great agenda, and therefore worthy of our avoidance. But maybe we need to think in a different way. Could we see possibly that challenges that we face, the very challenges that God allows, he prescribes and ordains as further ministry opportunities? Is it possible that we could have the perspective of stewarding the challenges that God allows into our lives rather than running from them? We steward other resources. Why couldn't we choose to steward, that is, guide the conflict, the difficulty, the challenge in a better direction? But there will always be new ministry challenges as you live your life for Christ. But secondly, there will always be new moral dilemmas. And now we have the dilemma presented to Jesus in verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. In some translations, it says, In the very act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? There's your moral dilemma. We will always be faced with new moral dilemmas. Should I confront this person or wait on God? Should I right this wrong or overlook the offense? Should I side with the opposition to save face or should I stick to my guns on the issue? Remember my East Peoria Community High School wrestler problem. In the dilemma that is brought to Jesus, if Jesus sides with the woman, he is seen as overthrowing the law of Moses, which from their perspective was to have great contempt for the Jewish faith. On the other hand, if Jesus sides with the scribes and Pharisees, he is seen as someone who is inconsistent with his own teaching, having no love, mercy, grace, or compassion, who also now condones bloodshed, mob rule, and a potential serious misapplication of Mosaic law. How would stoning the wound be a potential misapplication of the law? Well, one question, where's the man? What do you mean, where's the man? Well, where's the man who's also guilty of the same crime if this one was caught in the very act of adultery? According to the law, he should be stoned too. Leviticus 20.10 says, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Deuteronomy 22.22, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. Scribes and Pharisees are clearly sexist as they misapply Moses' law only against the woman. So there's much at stake here in Jesus' response to this dilemma. To me, as we're going to see, it is incredibly precious that Jesus intervenes on her behalf. Incidentally, that is what he's done for you and for me. He has intervened on our behalf. He's intervened on your behalf. He's intervened on my behalf. But there will always be new moral dilemmas. But thirdly here, we need to be wise as serpents 
and innocent as doves. In verse 6, we learn that this they said to test him, John says, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Later on, when Jesus sent out the disciples to share the gospel, he told them, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Notice how Jesus doesn't just start arguing with them or defending himself to them. He, he simply stoops down and he quietly writes on the ground with his finger. If you want to learn how to better respond to people in life, I encourage you to learn how to respond the way Jesus does. In just a few moments, Jesus is going to simply make a comment that's going to blow everyone away. But over and over again, throughout the Gospels, this is exactly what we see Jesus do as they keep trying to trap him. But Jesus is cool, he's calm, he's collected, and then he simply makes a comment or asks a few questions, and then everyone ends up walking away. Jesus demonstrates clearly that he takes his own advice, wherein he is truly as wise as a serpent and as innocent as a dove in this situation. We need to do the same. But fourthly here this morning, don't miss this. We have no right to hold anyone in contempt. We have no right to hold anyone in contempt. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, Well, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Notice that Jesus never condones or approves of her sin and rebellion. Scripture is very clear that all sexual activity outside the bounds of marriage between one man and one woman is sin. Jesus is not suggesting that the law should not be enforced. On the contrary, Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Beloved, we need to contrast personal vengeance with national justice. We are never allowed to take the law into our own hands personally as judge, jury, and executioner to promote our own interests as these men were doing against this woman. I want you to think for a moment how incredibly scandalous this whole thing is. They're using a sinful woman to sinfully trap Jesus so they can sinfully judge him with the ultimate goal of sinfully murdering him. However, Jesus was clearly challenging the motivations of the men who had brought the woman forward. Bottom line for us is that Jesus is the only one who has a right to judge sin. We plainly do not have the same right. Here's what Paul says in Romans 2. It won't be on the screen, but listen closely what Paul says. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Why? For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you'll escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The truth is that we are constantly condemning and judging people in our hearts, and we have no right to do so. And by the way, this is what I'm convinced of. I'm convinced if you're in contempt of everybody else, you have no clue what the gospel even is. Why? 
if you understood how much all your sin costs to the degree that Christ paid for it once and for all, if you understand that you've been released from your debt, the mountainous garbage bags on me and on you that we need release from with all of our sin and rebellion against the holy and righteous God, if we finally understood what he actually did, removing that from us entirely, we would be beside ourselves trying to find ways to forgive others. In other words, if you don't understand how much you've been forgiven, it'll be very hard for you to ever forgive. In verse 8, it says, and once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. And so here's the big question. What's he writing here? I mean, isn't that the question? What's he, what's he wrote one time and stands up, makes a statement, writes some more. What's he doing? It says that he's writing on the ground with his finger. Isn't that what it said? Verse 6. Jesus, who is in fact God incarnate, is writing on the ground with his finger. And by the way, this is the only time we hear anything about Jesus writing anything at any time. But don't forget that God also wrote something long ago with his finger. Exodus 31, 18, and he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Interesting. Hmm, where does this take us? What had the Jews just thrown at Jesus? They had just thrown the Ten Commandments at him. She's an adulteress. Stoner. So what do you think Jesus wrote? Here's what I think he wrote the first time he stooped. I think he just simply wrote down the ten words, the Ten Commandments. No other gods. No idols. No name in vain. Keep Sabbath, honor mom and dad, no murder, no adultery, no stealing, no false witness, no coveting. I think he just wrote that down the first time. Then he stood up, made a little statement, hey, anybody who has no sin can throw the first stone. And he stoops again, and he starts writing again. And we go, well, what did he write? Now, I wasn't there. I don't know what he wrote. But this seems to be the context. Notice what happens in the crowd, because it says when they heard it, they started leaving from the oldest to the youngest. So what do you think he did? I think he just wrote names. There's Jim. Jim. Next to that one. There's Tom. Next to that. Sorry, no, not, no offense, Tom. Tom's next to this one. Put Dave over here. And the minute they saw, oh no, I'm out of here. Again, I wasn't there. Maybe that's what happened. I don't know how else he might explain it. Something was being communicated. I think sometimes we have this idea that he was doodling on the ground. No, it wasn't a doodle. How do I know? Because it says when they heard it. In other words, when they could read it for themselves and understand what was being written, I'm out of here. We go, oh, wow. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw the stone. What commandment would he 
write your name by. Pastor, you were preaching and now you're meddling. But I'd like to remind you that everyone in this room is a lawbreaker, including yours truly. And based on that, since my name will be written down there, none of us have any place to be in contempt of anyone. Everyone in this room desperately needs God's amazing grace. And the good news is this, in Christ, we can experience God's amazing grace. That's our fifth truth today. In Christ, we can experience God's amazing grace. This is so fantastic. Look at verse 10. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, well, neither do I condemn you. The incredible truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that in Christ, we are no longer under the condemnation of our sin. Understand the root word of condemnation, condemnation. Paul writes in Romans 8, there is therefore now no what? Condemnation. You are not damned anymore. Why? For those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Truly an amazing truth based on God's amazing grace. No matter what you have done, this is why we love Jesus. This is why we sing worship songs to him and for him. I ask you, have you experienced his amazing grace personally? Are you now no longer under condemnation because you've put your full faith and trust in only him as your one and only Savior? In Christ, we can experience God's amazing grace. In the meantime, we saw how he's just been kind to us. His kindness to us, because we haven't received the wrath yet for our rebellion. He's been kind, and it's his kindness that leads us to repentance, Scripture says. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness to me, a sinner. But in Christ, we experience his amazing grace. But lastly here, that's not the end of the discussion. She said, no one, Lord, no one's condemning me anymore. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Those are incredible words. And he adds one more little caveat. Don't miss it. Go, and from now on, sin no more. In other words, you were in opposition. You were in rebellion. You should have been put to death. You've been freed now. You're no longer under condemnation. So now go and do what's right and obedient and beautiful. Neither do I condemn you. You mean I can really come to a place where I stop sinning? The message of the gospel is yes. Based on his grace toward us, there can truly be victory over sin. I've seen it. I've experienced it. You can too. 
through faith and repentance, turning away from sin and turning to faith in Christ, learning to walk in freedom apart from sin, walking in the Spirit, not in the flesh. And that's exactly what Paul says in Galatians 5. Again, this won't be on the screen, but notice the the differentiation between walking in the flesh and walking in the Spirit. See, before you put your faith and trust in Christ, the only question was how much were you going to sin? But now in Christ, you really have an option to choose to walk in the Spirit or to walk in the flesh. Paul says in 5.16 of Galatians, but I say walk by the Spirit and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. You see, if you're truly walking by the Spirit of God and His Word, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Why? For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Have you ever noticed? I hope there's a battle that goes on with you. By the way, this is one of the ways you can tell if you really are in Christ, is that there's a, there's a battle going on. There's the stuff I know I should do and the stuff I shouldn't do. Paul says in Romans 7, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this? Jesus will. But now you've got an option to walk in the Spirit through faith in Christ. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law, Paul says. Now, in verse 19 of Galatians 5, Paul gives an incredible list now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger. That's uh, throwing a little tantrum. None of you ever do that. Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you, as I've warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, those who are practicing these, practicing these things in an ongoing way with no repentance, you're in trouble. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You mean I can walk in the fruit of the Spirit? Against such things, there's no law. There's no law. No one's going to pull you over and give you a ticket for being way too patient. No one's gonna, you're not going to get in trouble for being, you know, super kind. You have all the freedom in Christ now to be as kind as you want to be, to be as gracious as you want to be, to be, are you ready, as self-controlled as you want to be in Christ as you submit yourself to him. Walking in his grace, we need to go and sin no more. So what happened with my wrestler guy? <laughs> Later that day, Rick is trying to get a hold of me. He can't find me. I was still at the school, it turned out. And he finally, <laughs> I was at some uh, sporting event at the school and Finally, he finds me, and he comes up to me. He goes, Brad, uh, I'm so sorry. I had no right to pressure you about passing that kid. And uh, I take it all back, and I, I, don't, I was like, I'm not sure. who would he talk to to figure out that maybe that was a wrong thing to be doing to a young teacher? But praise God, I mean, I still held my guns, and he finally backed off. 
And now the conversation could change. Okay, what can we do to work with this kid to help him get back on track? Okay, now that would have been the better conversation to start with. Right? Because we can do that. So I said, I'm willing to meet with him after school, come in on Saturdays, whatever he wants to do. But he's got to do the work. So his grades come up. So he actually learns algebra. Because that's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to educate people. I know not anymore. That doesn't happen anymore. But back then, that's what we were doing. The bottom line is I didn't have the authority to pass the kid, did I? No. But Jesus does have the authority to forgive our debts because he's God. How awesome is that? Only by his amazing grace can we find the forgiveness that we're all longing for, the restoration. There will always be new ministry challenges. There will always be new moral dilemmas. We need to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We have no right to be in contempt of anyone. In Christ, we need to experience God's amazing grace. We need to go and sin no more. As we move to the Lord's table here, uh, some passages came to my mind in terms of Jesus' authority in Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and said to, to him, to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's got the authority. He can call the shot. Paul writes in Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. He's got the authority. He's got the grace which he's lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. It's not as if we received a little bit of grace here. It's a boatload. It's a bucket load. You know, ever been to one of those Wolf Lodge things and they have the big bucket that fills with water, you know, and you, all the kids and everybody stand under it, wait for it to come. I mean, that's, that's it. That God's Would you please pray aloud with me? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. As Paul has written to the church at Corinth, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I've asked Elder Gary Cortman to pray for the bread, which was broken for us. Please take and eat. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. I've asked Elder Ron Crowfoot to pray for the cup which was poured out for us.
Father, I too come to you, and we all come to you, and we are grateful and thankful for this remembrance. I thank you for this, Lord, that you gave us this way to remember this time together. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your grace and for you providing this way, this the way for us to have our sins forgiven, to enter into eternal relationship with you. Thank you for making that way and being willing to shed your blood on our behalf. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Please take and drink. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time around your table and this time in your house to sing your praise. Lord, we thank you for what we can learn about who you are and what you've done for us. Lord, help us to take these truths with us into this week, knowing that we spent time with you and spent time with your people. So Lord, thank you. Thank you for all that you are to us. And now, Lord, as we go from this place, help us to be a light in a dark, dark and hurting world. Help us to take the good news of Christ to those who are in need. We pray all this in your son's wonderful and awesome name. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you so much for coming.